From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD, is sometimes confused with irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS. There's just one letter difference, but IBD and IBS are really very different digestive conditions. We'll find out what causes each and how they're treated. And it may not tell you exactly how much time you have left, but a simple treadmill test can help predict whether you'll live for at least 10 years or longer. Also on the program, losing weight, of course it's challenging, often taking months to achieve, but keeping the weight off can be even harder. We'll have some advice on maintaining a healthy weight. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD. It includes a number of conditions that can cause serious digestive system problems. In fact, if not properly managed, IBD can lead to life-threatening complications. My goodness, the CDC estimates that between 1 and 1.3 million people in this country suffer from IBD. Here to talk about IBD, how it's diagnosed, and how it's treated is Dr. Sunanda Kane. Dr. Kane is a gastroenterologist and internal medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kane. It's great to have you here. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. It sounds like about one out of every 300 people in the United States uh, might have or probably has inflammatory bowel disease. That is correct. And actually, the newest numbers suggest 1.6 million. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Well, i got to just come right out and admit... I didn't know there was a difference between IBS and IBD, aside from one letter, but you said I am not alone. Absolutely. So it's one letter different, but worlds apart. (laughs) Okay, so explain how they're different. Sure. Inflammatory bowel disease suggests that there's actual inflammation or damage to the lining of the gastrointestinal tract, and that includes anywhere from the mouth to the anal canal. Mm -hmm. So that's the esophagus, the stomach, the small intestine, or the large intestine also called the colon. IBS is irritable bowel syndrome. So a syndrome is a constellation of symptoms, but not a real disease. Mm. And so there is not any actual inflammation or damage to the lining of the GI tract. Unfortunately, you have very similar symptoms between IBD and IBS, like abdominal cramping, diarrhea, well, those are the two big ones. Um, and, and to confuse things even more, you can have IBS and IBD at the same time. No, mm-hmm. you could. No one could be that unlucky. <laughs> yes, but fortunately, the other true. way, can you have IBD and not IBS? Absolutely. Okay. So the majority of patients who have IBD do not have IBS, but a good third to forty percent of patients who have IBD who have inflamed bowels have irritable bowels as well because of the inflammation. And you said the symptoms are similar. Abdominal distress, diarrhea, or constipation part of the the picture? Correct. And so it's up to the clinician to figure out when the patient says, ouch, whether that's cramping or true pain from an inflammatory condition that's irritating the nerves that are surrounding the bowel. The two most common, I know, are ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Uh, there are other types of inflammatory bowel disease, but not much much less common. Correct. So there's actually four. So ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease are the two most common ones. And then we have what's called microscopic colitis. And microscopic colitis is further divided into collagenous colitis 
and then lymphocytic colitis. So the common theme here is the is the itis part. So that's inflammation of the bowel. And when you have inflammation, you end up with diarrhea and cramps. The problem with microscopic colitis is that it is indeed a diagnosis made under the microscope. So somebody who has diarrhea and cramps may go to have a colonoscopy or have a, a, a CT scan or some sort of x-ray, and it will look normal, and they are called IBS. But it's under the microscope with biopsies that you can see all the active inflammation. And that's what's driving the diarrhea. So anyone who is di- diagnosed with IBS, then do they have that microscopic test to go on to determine, oh, you actually don't have IBS, you just have IBD? Correct. And I know that we're going to be having a, a discussion. One of right. my other colleagues is going to talk about specifically IBS. But you do not get the diagnosis of IBD without biopsies. And you don't get the diagnosis of IBS without biopsies that are proven to be normal. So yes, your biopsy comes back that it's normal. And then you say, well, now we're going to go down the IBS path. Why is it important for a patient to know when they're sitting at home and explaining to their family, (laughs) IBS versus IBD. Why is it important to have that differentiated? The treatments are so vastly different. Hmm. So you can treat symptoms. So anybody with diarrhea, you can give Lamotil, uh, which is a prescription anti-diarrheal. You can give them fiber. You can give them Imodium. But when the diarrhea is being driven by inflammation, the best treatment is to treat the underlying inflammation Mm -hmm. to get the symptoms to stop. And that involves suppressing or manipulating the immune system, which obviously carries a lot more risk than if you're just having somebody take some Imodium over the counter. I'm trying to figure out which is worse, IBD or IBS, which is worse? You know, and it's all the perception of the patient. So a lot of a, a lot of what a patient experiences is what they bring to the table. So do they have a family support system? What sort of recreational hobbies do they have? What do they do for a living? So you can imagine that somebody who is a flight attendant or an undercover cop cannot afford to have a diarrheal illness. Right. So that somebody who has a little bit of inflammation that we might call mild when we look under the microscope or with a scope with a colonoscope may be far worse off than somebody who has what we would consider severe because of what they do for a living or their cultural surroundings or even, you know, how they're perceived by their family. So how are you going to treat the inflammation? How do you treat the IBD? What's the plan? Treatment is not one size fits all by any means. It depends on which disease you have and it depends on where it is in your body. So Crohn's disease is inflammation anywhere from mouth to anus. So somebody who has ulcers in their esophagus, you are not going to treat the same way as if they have it in their colon. Ulcerative colitis only involves the colon, but certain parts of the colon. So a third or half or whole of the colon can be involved. And then there's mild, moderate, and severe. In Crohn's, it depends on their body part. And then just to make things even more confusing, there are three types of Crohn's disease. So you can have it inflammatory. You can have what we call penetrating, where the ulcers and the inflammation is so deep that it burrows through the lining and you end up with abnormal tracks in between between the bowel system and either the outside skin or the kidneys, the bladder, the vagina, even into the upper thigh. That has to be if it's been untreated, right? Please tell me that's for being untreated. Correct. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Now, are these diseases that people are born with? 
Good question. So what you're getting at is how do you end up with these? Right. And that right now, boy, that's the $500 million question. And if I knew, I'd be on my way to Stockholm to get yes, my Nobel get Prize. Nobel Prize. <laughs> so what we understand is that, that it's a perfect storm of genetic predisposition, an altered immune system, and something in the environment. And so you get all three of those components together, and it sets off something in a specific individual that then leads to this inflammatory episode that just takes off like a train out of the station and runs off, and boom, you end up with symptoms. It's one thing to have the disease, and fortunately there is treatment, but the big concern, particularly with ulcerative colitis, is that it can turn into cancer, right? Right. So one of the complications of long-standing inflammation, regardless of which body part, is cancer. And that particularly for ulcerative colitis, that if you have an, an ongoing inflamed colon and not treated well, that you predispose yourself to uh, a risk of colon cancer, and that starts pretty much after about eight years of the diagnosis. Wow. We've been talking about IBD with Dr. Sinanda Kane. When we come back, we're going to talk about IBS and get that difference spelled out for us. Tom, can you follow perfect. this? It'll be perfectly clear when <laughs> yeah. we are all done. Again, Dr. Kane Agastro is a gastroenterologist and internal medicine specialist here at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Kane. Well, thank you. Thanks, Sinanda. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, not to be confused with inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD, about which we just heard, is another chronic digestive condition. IBS affects as many as 15% of the U.S. population. And while it's probably not as serious and potentially life-threatening as IBD, IBS includes symptoms that can range anywhere from uncomfortable to debilitating. Those symptoms can include bloating, gas, diarrhea, abdominal pain, the whole gamut. Well, we've learned a little about IBD, and now we're going to learn some more about IBS, how it's diagnosed, how it's treated, and a new diagnostic test for IBS. Dr. Yuri Sato is a specialist in gastroenterology at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Sato. Thank you. Is it fair to say that it's not as serious and potentially life-threatening as IBD? It's more about quality of life? I think it depends on who you ask, because there are certainly a lot of patients out there who have very severe disease, debilitating, prevents them from working, going to school, has uh, resulted in disability, has uh, altered or affected their choices in terms of their careers, their ability to work out of the home. But that said, there certainly are a number of people out there who have more mild to moderate symptoms as well. And they're able to carry on, do their activities of daily living as needed. But, um, you know, I can tell you that there are some really sick IBS patients out there. You know, I've heard it said that this is a wastebasket diagnosis, that patients have bowel symptoms of one kind or another, and you really can't figure out what's wrong. And so you label them as having uh, irritable bowel. (laughs) Spoken like a true orthopedic surgeon, right? (laughs) You know, again, I think it's a matter of perspective. I think that for many physicians or uh, perhaps even gastroenterologists, they may view it as such in part because it doesn't have the same um, 
threat as the word cancer mm-hmm. or it's not as tangible as certain other diseases like inflammatory, inflammatory bowel disease, which you can see, touch, do a blood test for, for which there are specific treatments. I think that what makes IBS, you know, why it's been called a wastebasket diagnosis is that in part because there's no test for it, it sometimes becomes a diagnosis of exclusion. And, um, you know, I think there's also the sense of, well, this is kind of a spectrum of normal. And so, you know, it's nothing serious. Don't worry about it. But I would disagree with the term that it's a wastebasket diagnosis. Cause oh, I and that's it, okay. I wanted to oh, know sure. that. But, you know, sometimes it's hard for uh, a person who's not as familiar with the disease as you are to how, how it do you reconcile the fact that some yes. patients with irritable bowel have diarrhea, some patients with irritable bowel have constipation? How can it be the same disease? Well, you know, I, I think that it, it really comes down to, in layman's terms, just referring to it as sort of irregularity. So why is it that once when an individual eats food, the process of digestion, um, as well as the uh, evolution of that material into waste material, It has to go through a lot of processing, sophisticated processing, Mm -hmm. 30 feet of processing (laughs) between mouth to the bottom. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine that a lot of different things could happen to that food item along the way. And it may get stuck. It may cause gas. It may cause pain and spasms. Ideally, it wouldn't cause any symptoms in the average person. But one can imagine that with 30 feet of distance to cover, that somewhere along the way, it's not surprising that there's going to be a few knocks and pings that somebody's going to feel. Is there a genetic link to IBS? We think so. One of my great research interests is, is sort of looking at the early life risk factors for irritable bowel syndrome. And so we have looked at uh, families. We've also looked at early life events. And we know that um, having a family member with irritable bowel syndrome is a strong risk factor for developing IBS. From my notes, I have here that there are four types of IBS. Is that correct? And what are they? So the main, um, they we tend to differentiate it now um, into uh, constipation-predominant irritable bowel syndrome, diarrhea-predominant irritable bowel syndrome, mixed or alternating um, irritable bowel syndrome, and then there's the undifferentiated form where it doesn't fit those other three criteria. That's sort of interesting, isn't it? You said the mixed form where some Sometimes these patients have diarrhea. Sometimes they're constipated. Interesting. More common in women. Any explanation for that? So um, when we've done population-based studies, it does appear to affect men and women with a slightly greater female predominance. But there is no denying that it looks like women are more likely to seek medical attention. This is definitely something that's affecting quality of life, though. So are you seeing more and more men that are saying, okay, yes, I probably should get some help for this IBS? One of the things that I wonder about is if, you know, the men are less likely to come in, but also I think that it's a little bit more socially acceptable for men to have, you know, you know, to pass gas or, you know, have cramps or have a little irregularity, whereas I think for women, it's not socially acceptable. It doesn't seem normal. Their friends don't have this, you know, we've got to do something about this so I can so hmm. I can take the kids to school, so I can go out with my friends, so I can, you know, go to work, you know, and, and it's hard to talk about 
these issues with, you know, your colleagues, your friends, even your relatives. Is there a certain age range of folks that have trouble with IBS? We know that it affects individuals of all ages. We tend to think of it more so as being an adult disorder, but we know from the pediatric population that it does affect kids as well. When we did a large survey of patients coming through um, and asked them when their symptoms started, typically it was in their early 20s. And we kind of pretty much expect that for the most part, except for some waxing and waning, that once you develop symptoms, you're probably going to have IBS um, for the rest of your life. So we know that the the diagnosis accumulates over somebody's lifetime. We know that this has always been a difficult disease to treat, partly because of the plethora of of symptoms. But what do you have now? What's available now that seems to be most effective for these people? So it's hard to say that there's just one therapy or just narrow it down because, again, there there is this plethora of symptoms. And in part two, it depends. Um, people have responded differently to, to different interventions. So some people respond beautifully to dietary and other lifestyle interventions, just recognizing that there may be some uh, avoiding certain dietary triggers or your reaction to stress and stress management, I think, makes a huge difference as well. But that said, for people who have more severe symptoms or uh, symptoms that are much harder to control, then we tend to target for that breakdown uh, in the division uh, into subtypes is very helpful. So if somebody's more constipation predominant, then we'll start treating them with agents that will help facilitate a bowel movement. If they're more uh, diarrhea predominant, Mm. then we, you know, we'll give them agents to try to bulk up their stools so that they'll have fewer bowel movements. And then if they're mixed, we may, uh, depending on where they're at, um, may try to target both. It seems like it's a t- it would be a tough thing to do, is it? Or is it relatively easy to help patients once they come and see you? I think that a lot of people do very well with the, the dietary modification with a little bit of counseling. But by the time that someone comes to see me, a gastroenterologist, particularly at a, a referral center, I think that they've, you know, they tend to be more severe and they can be tougher. And I think that everyone also tends to be different. What works for one person may not work for another. Um, what may be a trigger for one person may not be a trigger for somebody else. And so that's where I think the, the interaction, the dialogue between the patient and the physician is so important. Tough to treat, also tough to diagnose it. But you have some blood tests that can help you? There's always been this great interest in trying to find a biomarker. So that would be some kind of blood test or, you know, x-ray or just something that would say this is what you have. So I'll just say that there's been one test that's been out on the market for, oh, I want to say two years now by Prometheus. That's not gained a lot of acceptance. There is a newer test that's coming out. I'm personally still not convinced that this is necessarily going to be the the end all, that it's going to be something that can importantly discriminate between different diagnoses. So I guess I would just say, wait and I would see. Huh? Wait and see. <laughs> I'd like to see more data. Fairly common disease, but in most cases, you can control it. Most of the time, yes. Dr. Yuri Sato, specialist in gastroenterology and a true expert in IBS. Thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, can how well you perform on a simple treadmill test predict whether you'll live 10 years or more? We'll have the answer. And keeping the pounds off after weight loss. Often it's more challenging than losing the weight in the first place. We'll have some expert advice on managing your weight after weight loss. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with the Mayo Clinic News Network headline. It's a fact of life. Women go through menopause, but do men go through the change too? 
definitely men have hot flashes. Mayo Clinic endocrinologist Dr. Todd Nipolt says hot flashes in men aren't common, but they can happen when testosterone levels get very low. There is a decline in, in male hormone production in men as they age, but it's a very slow decline over many years. Typical symptoms of low testosterone include low libido, erectile dysfunction, fatigue, and loss of muscle mass. Testosterone replacement therapy can help, but there are some risks, so talk to your health care provider about what's right for you. Low testosterone is part of normal aging, but it can also be a sign of an underlying health issue. Dr. Nipholt says it's important to rule that out before starting testosterone replacement therapy. And that's today's Mayo Clinic News Network headline. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Most of us, Tracy, if given the chance, would probably like to have some idea how long we're going to live. That information is pretty hard to come by and obviously not easy to predict. But now, a new study published earlier this year in the medical journal Mayo Clinic Proceedings indicates that a simple treadmill test, simple but not, not a easy, treadmill test. <laughs> can accurately predict whether you'll live 10 years or more. <laughs> the study was conducted by researchers at Johns Hopkins University, and it reviewed data from more than 58,000 people between the ages of 18 and 96 who had been on the treadmill. Wow, with just a treadmill. Well, here to talk about the study and how a simple treadmill test can help to predict longevity is Dr. Thomas Allison. Dr. Allison is director of the Integrated Stress Testing Center and the Sports Cardiology Clinic at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Allison. Well, thank you very much. So what do you think of this study? Is it true that you can get on a treadmill for a little while and then you guys, you cardiologists, heart specialists, can predict how long we're going to live? Well, we, we've known that for a long time. And, and let's say, let's say when we, when we say we predict how long you're going to live, what we're really saying is your risk of dying in certain intervals of time. Hmm. Okay. Uh, now. That sounds better. How long you're going to yeah, live. That, yeah, that, yeah, that sounds better. <laughs> now, and, and, and it's interesting is, is I'm, we're going to talk about that paper, but I'm, I'm working on our own paper now with an older cohort of patients, and, and I'm looking for a group of patients that we've tested long enough ago, and there's been a long enough follow-up, that they're all deceased. And so from there, we could actually look at longevity or number of years of life after a stress test and, and come up with an equation to predict that versus saying, um, you know, certain percentage will have died in, in so many years. It's a, it's a slightly different. So stretching things all the way out to the end. Well, why don't you explain how this study that we're talking about was conducted and what the outcome, what it showed? Okay. Well, well, basically, basically, like like all other studies, we look at certain variables on the stress test, and we predict your all-cause mortality. Okay, all-cause mortality is a fairly easy thing to ascertain compared to whether or not you've had a heart attack. That that requires more sophisticated processing, and all-cause mortality is a pretty solid endpoint. You know, saying someone had a heart attack, well, they got a stent, but we don't know how much heart damage there was, or was this a new heart attack or an old heart attack? 
kind of you're dead, you're dead. So mm-hmm. it's it's a pretty firm endpoint, and there are a lot of different databases that that can give it to us. And and so we look at a stress test result, and we look at the kind of information we get, and then we project, we follow that cohort forward uh, and see who dies and what factors on our stress test could predict could predict death. Well, it, I guess it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Because really what you're doing is testing the function of the heart and lungs and obviously vital to life. Isn't, isn't that why? Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, you, you basically, basically the, um, you're looking at the horsepower, okay, and, um, uh, and if, if the car is designed to have a certain horsepower and it can't produce that horsepower, you know, that's not the car you want to buy from the used car lot, right? And so the same way a patient coming in, um, we can do all sorts of imaging of the patient. We can, we can take history. We, we, can, um, we can do lab work and other things like that. But when we test the performance of the patient, that's an extremely strong predictor of where the patient is on, on that continuum. And the better you do on the test, the, the longer you're likely to live. The longer Nobody knows you, for sure. The long, no one knows for sure, for sure. You know, obviously, things like runaway buses and, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, there's all, there's all sorts of things. But in a, in a population such as was tested here, got a population coming to a medical center, being referred to a cardiology department for a stress test, the the overwhelming cause of death in a group like that is going to be heart disease or, to a lesser extent, lung disease. Mm-hmm. Because so, it's the num- heart disease that, is the number that, one cause. Yeah, yeah. If you if you if you were if you were in a GI database, for example, maybe the number one cause of death would be gastrointestinal cancers. Okay, and and so they might have very different predictors. Than we would in cardiology, hmm. but but uh, Tom, when you send me a patient and say I want a stress test for this patient, you're thinking this patient might have some cardiac issues, and so heart disease is not only the most common death, cause of death in you know in the U.S. population, but in that population you send to the stress test, it it's going to be overwhelmingly the most common. But even though in retrospect you can get an idea about longevity, you don't normally talk to the patient about that when they're done with the stress test, do you? I mean, you don't say – I mean, you might say you did well on it, but you don't say, well, you know, it looks like you're going to live 10 years or, or more. Or do you? Oh, you, you do, yeah. Do you? You do. I mean, d- it, again, depending on the particular clinical scenario, um, certain certain scores, treadmill scores have been – Produced the Duke treadmill score is probably the most commonly used one that basically gives you say okay your four year ten year mortality is such and such and we often give patients a a a sort of a physical age versus a chronological age so in other words you say you performed on the stress test not like a fifty two year old man but like a 66-year-old man. 
or like a 42-year-old man. I like that better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, th- this would be some encouraging words if somebody needs a, an excuse to get out and start exercising a little bit more so that if they were to take a stressed test on a treadmill, they might do better, thus live they, longer. They might do better, and they and they would live longer not because they did better on the stress test, but because of what they were doing mm-hmm. to do better on the stress test. So Exercise you really, it. Yeah. yeah, you really have two factors. You, two factors. The, the overwhelming one is probably your level of physical activity. Okay. The second one is probably a genetic factor, you know, and if you have some, if you have an underlying disease process, that may interfere with your ability to perform, okay? Even if you're trying to exercise a lot, you you aren't able to do it well if you have some underlying heart disease. So the stress test measures premorbidity or premortality in that sense, and it also measures your physical activity, which we know is protective from you. Uh, typically, and unfortunately, People, when they read the stress test, they usually say, well, your test was positive or negative, <laughs> meaning you had, you had signs you're of heart. You're going to live or you're going to die. No, you had signs of heart disease or you didn't have signs of heart oh. disease. When performance on the test is the most important measure. You know, People can live with a disease for a long time if they're taking good care of themselves, and other people without disease may have a shorter life expectancy because they're not taking good care of themselves. So there's your motivation. You've got to do better on the treadmill, Dr. Shives. Well, yeah, and genes are important, too. Very good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Okay. Allison, for coming and telling us about the treadmill stress test. I promise to run a little bit longer next time I'm out. <laughs> All right, you do that. Yeah, and practice before <laughs> you go. That's right. Yeah. We'll take a short break. When we come back, you've achieved your weight loss goal. Now, how do you keep the weight off long term? We'll have some answers. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You finally made it. After months of careful dieting, you've arrived at your goal, your ideal weight. All that careful attention to your calorie intake has finally paid off, and you feel great. Now, what can you do to keep the weight off? For many people, maintaining weight loss is as or more difficult than losing the weight in the first place. Here to talk about losing weight and strategies for keeping it off is Dr. Karen Grothy. Dr. Grothy is a psychologist at Mayo Clinic, and she helps people before and after gastric bypass surgery. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Grothy. Thank you so much for having me. So you've got a tough job, um, not only helping people lose weight, but helping them keep it off. So and we're going to concentrate on keeping it off. So how about some tips for that? Absolutely. And you're right on that, that weight loss maintenance or keeping weight off is the biggest challenge for people, no matter how they lose weight. So we know for people that lose weight on their own or through Weight Watchers or programs like that, a lot of them struggle with regain. And part of that has to do with this biological adaptation that happens where our gut hormones try to tell us we're hungry when we're losing weight to preserve our life that was helpful thousands of years ago, but not so much now when we have fast food on every corner. 
Um, so weight loss maintenance is a whole separate set of skills that not a lot of people have practiced. And um, there's some good data out there to show that a couple of key things can really help people keep weight off. Weighing yourself regularly, and I mean like daily or every other day. Mm-hmm. Physical activity, and I mean more like 60 minutes or 10,000 to 15,000 steps a day. And periodically checking in on what you're eating, keeping a food diary. Wait a second. You said weighing yourself. And I thought that when you're going through all the weight loss, they always say, just pet, put that scale away. Don't focus on that. <laughs> Think about how you feel, how your clothes are fitting and how much better you're doing. But now you're telling that's yes. completely opposite once you get to a maintenance part. Well, and we think weight, we think now that weighing is helpful for weight loss as well. Um, because a lot of people avoid that feedback about where their body is at. So I liked all the things you said about, you know, focus on how good you feel and how your clothes fit. But there is a very large registry called the Weight Control Registry. Thousands of people in there. They've been studying these people for 10 plus years. And these are people that on average have lost 60-some pounds and on average kept it off for about five years. So they're really successful weight loss maintainers. And so these researchers got together and said, let's figure out what are these people doing? And most of them were weighing daily or every other day. And a study just in the last two years found, take that another step. So if you are zero to two pounds within your goal weight that you've gotten to, don't do anything. That's fluid, that's scale error, that's the clothes you had on yesterday. If you're three to four pounds up, do something. Take some action. Mm. Think about it. Stop and say, I've been eating out a little more or um, I haven't been as active. If you're five pounds or more up, take serious action. Mm -hmm. So I think it like green, yellow, red. And that means start keeping a food diary, get in to see a provider, go to a Weight Watchers meeting or some kind of weight management group and take action because that's starting to be real weight regain. And if you don't weigh yourself every day, you don't know that. Mm -hmm. So that's what an important part of it. I agree. Well, and I would say even if you haven't lost weight, that's kind of something to keep a good check on that, well, I'm, I'm starting to gain a little bit of weight now because apparently as you get older, you start to gain weight. <laughs> In different places and different yeah, ways. What's that yeah. Okay, so wait. Okay, you said the first thing is weighing yourself. The second thing is some heavy-duty exercise to 60 minutes of exercise a day Absolutely. or how yeah. many times a week? So that's a day, and I don't want your listeners to freak out and say, oh, forget it then. Um, but actually, when we look at the predictors of keeping a large amount of weight off, physical activity is number one. So to lose weight, changing my diet is the number one thing I can do. To keep weight off, being more active is the number one thing that I need to do. And hopefully as you've been losing weight, you've been increasing your activity, increasing your endurance, and it's 60 minutes or 10 to 15,000 steps a day. But that's over the course of your whole day, and it can be in 10-minute or 20-minute bouts. And when they look at these successful weight loss maintainers from the Weight Control Registry, they really, most of them were walking. They were they didn't go to fancy gyms every day of their week. They didn't use trainers. They were just walking, but most of them were more like 60 minutes a day. And what was the third thing? The third food diary. Food diary. Yeah, the gotcha. food diary. So what's going to happen after you've lost weight and you get comfortable with eyeballing, I know how much a cup of cereal is and how much a cup of rice or pasta is in my plates, you're going to start drifting 
to the American environment. And then that's going to get bigger and bigger. And so what you have to do and what these successful weight loss maintainers have done is just periodically check yourself. Get out your measuring cups, get out your food scale and your food diary, and take at least a couple of days and measure Okay, I was at about a cup and a half of cereal. Measure and write it down so you reset yourself. Most of us, if we're just kind of estimating how much we're eating, we're off by about 50%. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So if I think I'm eating 2,000 calories a day but I'm not measuring and writing down, I'm probably more like 3,000 calories a day. The statistics are really pretty discouraging with regard to weight loss, aren't they? Because Mm -hmm. what is the percentage of people that regain all the weight they've lost within six months or a year? It's a high percentage, isn't it? Yeah. For people that that lose weight through behavioral means by about two years, it's it's close to 80 to 90 percent, which is really disheartening. And part of this, we're learning all the time about this biological adaptation that happens. So these hormones that tell you you're hungry, even a year after I've lost weight are kind of working to tell me I'm hungry to try to regain because my body had been at kind of a set point that it was comfortable at. And even though maybe it wasn't a good healthy weight for me, my body feels like I need to get back there. So I think this is where combining healthy lifestyle change, where things just become automatic, like brushing your teeth, that I get some kind of activity somewhere every day. It's just like brushing my teeth. I don't think about it. And where we pair those things with some of the new medications that are coming out, the procedures that are coming out that really have that biological impact as well could really help people be more successful long term. What else have you found that is really helpful for uh, for a person to become a maintainer? You mentioned the, the three things, but are, are there support groups or other things that you have found that uh, help people be, be successful? Yeah, absolutely. So having developing a support network that you can rely on. I think of, you know, motivation is half of this, at least half of this. It's different for every person. So motivation is like a dimmer switch. It's not like a switch you flip on or off, I'm motivated or I'm not. Some days my motivation light is shining really bright, and some days it's really dim. And so on those dim days, where can I go? Who can I turn to to help me Just kind of get through that day. And so having a support network of people that are aware of your goals and supporting them, having a meeting. We know from very large weight loss maintenance study that twice a month in person with a provider will help people regain less. Hmm. Weighing in, being accountable. We're trying to see if you can approximate that via electronic means. But Mm -hmm. so far, it's really that in person, someone's going to ask me, how you doing? And I will stay on track. And you mentioned medications. Where is that going to fit into this puzzle in the future? Um, You know, right now, so there's five medications that are FDA approved for weight loss. Several of them are brand new. So it's really right now physicians who specialize in weight management, who are comfortable prescribing them for the most part. They're still fairly costly, and they boost your weight loss a little bit, but not incredibly so, like some of the procedures. So I think as insurance gets more comfortable paying for it, as physicians get more comfortable prescribing them when they're safe, I think that can really, as long as you're making those lifestyle changes, because that's the cornerstone of anything, that could really help people either reduce their appetite or feel fuller, faster, sooner 
so they reduce how much they're taking in. And if you and I could invent a medication that really works, we probably wouldn't have to do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to work I on that. In. No. <laughs> Let's get to work on that. Uh, Dr. Karen Grothy, psychologist at the Mayo Clinic. She's an expert on losing weight and keeping it off. Dr. Grothy, thanks for being with us. Thank you. That's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.